1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, my name is Ari Barbalat. I'm your host on the New Books Network podcast. I'm blessed and honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. Kwasi Konadu. He is the John D. and Atherin T. MacArthur Endowed Chair and Professor of African History and Africana Studies at Colgate University. We are here today to discuss his new book, Many Black Women of This Fortress. Monica and Adua, Three Enslaved Women of Portugal's African Empire, published in London by Hearst 2022. It's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ari, for having me. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Um, where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar you would
2: become as an adult? I was born in the island of Jamaica and I came with my mother and brother to Brooklyn, New York in the late part of the 1980s and so I've lived here in the United States um, since that moment. The most formative experience um, in my um, life that has shaped you know the kind of scholar and, and person that I am Starts with my grandfather, uh, who was a healer in Jamaica and whom I learned quite a bit from and who I hung around. And he was actually my favorite um, person um, as a young child in Jamaica. And um, that sort of healing um, experience with him came to a head in 2001 when I had a dream um, with another healer uh, who I had met uh, from Ghana And this healer told me that if I wanted to know more about my great-great-great-grandmother who had hailed from the former Gold Coast, present-day Ghana, that I should go to Ghana. And that's what I did. And effectively, my PhD research and um, those that have come after that point, um, after 21 years, um, I mean, the rest is pretty much history. So it was that formative experience with my grandfather, that sort of you know, crescendoed into that moment in 2001. Um, and that moment 2001 has essentially shaped my life works and who I am as a scholar and otherwise. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? I was inspired by this very difficult um, file that um would become the the trial dossier uh, the portuguese inquisitional file for grasa um, that was composed in uh, 1540 1541 and it's it's a very difficult file even though it's a very relatively short one it's probably about 30 folios uh, in total uh, but this was at the earliest um, point of the portuguese inquisition since so getting to act together the portuguese inquisition i'm sure we'll talk about more Um, was officially formed four years earlier in 1536. And so by 1540, you know, much of the institutional um, behavior and workings and procedures had not been really put in place yet. And so um, reading this file, there were several hands, meaning scribes who had written this document. And uh, it was a very difficult file um, to get through um, because not only because of the Gothic handwriting, because of the erratic way in which the scribes, you know, wrote, um, but also the 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 absence of, you know, her first person voice. Um, she used a lot of sign language and gestures in addition to, you know, what the authorities claim uh, was her responses, and so, um, that's really what was intriguing. It was, and it was very difficult. Um, I had some some friends. I uh, see some colleagues in um, Brazil and then Portugal. Take a look at it to see what I'm missing, uh, and and they have some very important advice. So it took me, I think, maybe two years just to work through Gracias. And once I saw that, um, I knew I had something, but I knew it was insufficient. And then I I uh, was able to find Monica Monica Fernandez's file. Um, the last person um, is is Ajua. Uh, a Monday born female um, from the uh, Akan um, speaking and cultural group um, in Ghana. And she uh, was baptized Maria. Now her story is is, is interesting and fascinating because hers um, was not an inquisitional file. Hers was basically a name set in passing. Um, but I'm sure we'll talk about this more where her story in the book, which is the last story, the third story is really one of methodology. Uh, Meaning, which answers the question, how do we excavate and 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 find and then feature um, the 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 stories of of people who left no documentary record, whose name only come in passing, um, and and to do them and their world um, justice. And so that third you know chapter and that third story um, answers and tackles that question and and you know quite a bit more. Um, what I hope for folks to takeaway from the book uh, is multiple. First is is that um, we scholars have to do the um, not so glamorous hard work to dig deep and dig wide and and ask historicized questions about um, the sources we find and not simply blame the archive for being the archive uh, or blame an empire for being an empire that has an archive but really um, no one find complete lives in an archive. Otherwise writing history would be very simple. Um, It's a difficult, um, you know, figuring out a fragments, piecing together, um, you know, inconsistencies and really reading against and with the grain to to try to eke out, you know, meaning, but also lives. And so I hope they take away that. In addition to that, I hope readers will also um, take away Taken together these three women's lives about, you know, um, you know, a ways in which these African women um, and I think African girls, I think, you know, Ajwa slash Mono, I mean, Maria were relatively young. Uh, though the records don't speak, doesn't say for sure how, her age, but how African women um, and girls uh, in the 16th century doing this very crucial moment in making of the modern world responded to uh, not simply um, the exigencies or things going on in, in, in that vast canvas of the global, you know, world being shaped, but also how they responded to their own internal drive um, in terms of their cultural norms and forms, their spirituality, their own particular form of female power or agency, um, essentially on their own terms while confronting a global empire. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? One of the primary themes of the book. Is um, really the 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 force um, of, of of the of the seen unseen, which is to say, um, of African spiritual culture. Um, all three women, but particularly uh, Monica and Grasa, and unfortunately, we only have their baptismal name. We don't know their indigenous African um, name. Um, and so, for those two women, that left it, had an inquisitional documentary trail. Um, one of the key themes um, is, is certainly, um, you know, the, the ways in which um, you know African spiritual, African-based spirituality and culture are tightly braided, are, are really uh, indistinguishable, uh, and so that you know the, these these cultural acts or spiritual acts, and vice versa, and how those cultural um, technologies and, 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 and ideas and intellectual histories. Really um set the course for how people see themselves in their ecologies and how people see themselves vis-a-vis the strangers that come upon their shores. Um, and that could be for any part of coastal Africa, it could be for India, it could be for Brazil, any part of the world in which people who are not indigenous to those places and who come as 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 um, as as colonists and slavers, um, it's really a global story uh, uh, about the encounter between a local place and, and a would-be, you know, globalizing uh, empire, and the ways in which, you know, these through the lives of these women, we we, we get a different view of how the modern world took shape. In other words, a gestation period, right? That this world was filled with violence on the various levels uh, of various registers. So, um, you know, religious violence, spiritual violence. Um, cultural violence, um, you know, the regular military violence that we that we expect in these conflicts, um, the the violence of 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 commerce and trade, um, given unequal you know valuations in goods, uh, and we can talk about that more if, if you like. So, how the, this cauldron of 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 various violences and war uh, becomes the incubator for you know this thing we call modernity in the modern world. What does your book teach us about silence? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, it teaches that there are different kinds of silences. Um, silence is not simply not talking or not being audible. Um, you take the case uh, or the story of Grasa, uh, where, uh, as 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 you look through, or at least I and others may look through her her particular um, file, and see that. Um, because she doesn't know the Portuguese language, when she's brought to Lisbon and brought to the, um, this, which is the center of, of the empire, the capital and of the kingdom, and center of the empire, and she's brought into this dungeon. And then, of course, the, the, the men of the Inquisition are upstairs, I think on the third floor or, or thereabouts. And, um, you know, they, they are um, interrogating uh, her. Uh, was she tortured? I can't say from the records, though it's not out of the question. Um, certainly, she was slapped. We know that. So there was again violence um, several times um, by one of the um, witnesses or testifiers. Nonetheless, um, you know, silence in her case was that because she didn't know the Portuguese language, even though she was four or three centuries, um, decades, excuse me, under Portuguese hegemony and rule as a captive, as an enslaved person um, on the um, former Gold Coast she didn't speak the language well or, or at all. And so she used, according to the prosecutor, hand signs and gestures, right? So in one hand, there's an instance uh, of silencing or being muted because one is not fluent or or at least has competence in the language. But on the other hand, how there's a way of maneuvering around being silenced by through gestures. And I, I found it fascinating that she used gestures and sign language basically to communicate uh, with 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 her tormentors and, and the inquisitors, um, I think silence also certainly plays a role in terms of how people, historians, other scholars, think about the archive. I push back against that very strong to say that archives do what archives do. They're, they're, they're bureaucratic uh, arms of empire and arms of nation states that are there um, to um, as sort of war chess to celebrate the uh or sing the praise song um uh, for those nation states and former empires. Uh, they're not there to tell this, tell the, the story and certainly not there to tell the um the truth of the story of the people whom were their colonial subjects or you know their captives. And so um uh, to say that the archives is silencing, I, I, I simply is simply to say that archives do what they're built to do, that is to record keep and, and, and to organize records and to decide which has value and which doesn't uh, in terms of sorting out what to keep and what to discard. Uh, but there's nothing special or, 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 you know, um, diabolical about the archive or any archive uh, because that's what they're designed to do. So I push back against archives as being this, you know, inhibitor of scholars getting to the stories that, you know, they're trying to find or get to this thing called the truth or get to, um, you know, these thresholds. On the contrary, I lay out that, um, we have to, you know, accept that A, we don't find complete lives in any archive and B, uh, we have to, you know, grapple with uh, and, and really just um, tussle over the fragments that we find um, and, and and really um, put the best of our methods to, you know, squeeze out as much, you know, nutrients in terms of lived experience that we can, but also finally to accept that there are lives that we'll never recover. And that that's, that's just part of the process of, of doing this kind of work.
0: What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of slavery?
2: Hmm. I think one of the key contributions that, that it makes is that it it recalibrates, um, again, the early formation of not only global empires, in this case, Portugal, which sets the pace for all other European empires. It is also that this was a missionary maritime enslaving um, empire and so uh, what it does it makes clear that um you know Africans did not invent or 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 coordinate or initiate transoceanic slaving it was brought to their Shores indeed when the Portuguese landed on um, Graça's, um coastline in, in 1471 um I think they were around January 1471 um they came as beggars um, because Portugal had a very little gold in terms of uh, gold coinage, and that was the mark of a, you know, monarchy in, in the European setting. Um, monarchies were measured by, you know, how much gold and therefore how much liquidity and, and, and power and, and prestige one has. And so um, they went searching for these fabled lands of gold in, in Western Africa. And they came upon this place, which they dubbed to be the Mina Coast. Mina referring to the mine, that is the gold mine, and it was a gold mine. Um, and so, um, the the function of, of, of slavery, transoceanic slavery, is that the Portuguese then developed um, this this regional transoceanic triangular trade, uh, you know, within the Gulf of Guinea, uh, which is little told by the way. So between the Gold Coast. Um, the Kingdom of Benin, and later on the Congo golate region, and Sao Tome and, and Principe, particularly Sao Tome, uh, these became sort of the triangular region uh, for a regional trafficking in, in captive African bodies, which would then feed um, or bleed into Portugal, and Portugal would supply Spain or Castile with its captives, and some of those captives would enter into the Americas, and so. The 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 earliest sort of trafficking happens in the Gulf of Guinea, um, in terms of transoceanic slaving, that then dovetails into what becomes the Atlantic, you know, variety of it. So, um, the book certainly makes an important contribution to sort of recalibrating and reframing that, which is to say that the Portuguese and other Europeans brought the infrastructure, the ideology, and, and as well as the capital um, onto African soil because they ran a they ran. Uh, sort of a slave organization through um, their fortress um, called Sarajome de Mina, later rebranded as Elmina Castle uh, on the Gold Coast. And they would have other castles and other Europeans, the Dutch, the British, the Swedes, the Danes, uh, the Brandenburgers from what became later Germany. They would all follow that particular model. Of course, what happens in the Americas, what happens in the rest of Eurasia and and in the Pacific, really flows out of these earlier experience that the Portuguese had, um, essentially plowed the way and and provided a template, a model. So I think in that from that perspective, there's definitely a lot there that really, uh, helps us to recalibrate in terms of the history, but also historiography, you know, for you know the early you know globalizing modern world.
1: Well, I don't know.
2: What role do competing and
0: contested epistemologies play in this book? How does your book present
2: questions of knowledge, truth, and epistemology? Great question. On the one hand, you have you have officials um, um of the Inquisition, the Portuguese Inquisition, um, which that Inquisition was modeled after the one in Spain, uh, one in Castile, Spain, um, yeah. almost verbatim um with, with a few nuances in terms of hierarchy and structure and you know what the, the viewers of this will 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 also um, probably need to appreciate is that um the clergy and the and the crown that is the, the monarchy in Portugal um they were they had they were very very tight in terms of their, their power but also ideological and therefore epistemological relationship um the clergy uh, for instance would um disallow uh, bloods on their hands. So after they would torture and condemn, you know, a particular person for for uh-huh. heresy or for blasphemy or for uh-huh. bigamy or what, whatever the particular infraction was against, you know, uh, Catholic orthodoxy, um, they would pass that victim onto the, the sort of, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, temporal or mundane churches uh, for them to execute the person if the person was to be executed so that bloods wouldn't be you know, spiritually or religiously on on their hands and and their head. And so there's a way in which the knowledge that's produced by the institution called the Inquisition, you know, has a certain authority, you know, over uh, the the Portuguese kingdom um, in, in Portugal, but also what happens in these Um, Other portions of the Portuguese empire, which is basically a patchwork of factories and forts along the West and West Central African coasts, along the coast of Brazil, certainly by the mid to late 16th century, on the coast of East Africa, um, along the Swahili coast, and of course, along the coast of Western India by Goa and Gujarat and and further south. Um, you know, in, even in in further north, um, pressing into the Arabian Peninsula. And so um, and the Portuguese course would, would lend itself over far as Japan and China. And so you know these patchwork of fortresses and, and, and factories, they become conduits for the particular kind of, of, of militarized Catholicism, and of course, the epistemology whereby people who were non-European, um, you know were basically cast into this category, you know, uh, of of depravity in terms of their religious and spiritual uh, beliefs, but also cast it as um, people um, that you know did not have um, the right God and therefore the right you know political structure, and if it didn't have the right um, cultural values or civilization, uh, and it was upon the Portuguese to essentially uh, um, civilize these people. So that comes in in sharp contrast and conflict with. The women like Graça and Monica and Adjua because these women and the people that they are a part have their own self-understanding, their own sense of, of, of where they stand in the world, uh, their own set of beliefs. And, and the tension there was that in Africa in particular, um, you know, the Portuguese didn't make much inroads. Um, their missionaries um, failed on, on the Guinea on the Gold Coast um, terribly. Uh, and and I would argue that's because of the strength yeah. of the self-understanding of the anchoring in that understanding yeah. that the people had. So you know they they were you know uh, combatants. Um, and in the book there are episodes where I, I point out that these women uh, mm-hmm. act in that particular manner. Um, in other words, yeah. in the case of, of Monica, um, she would go to a healer, you know, to get medicines and therapeutics for her and refused to go to the Catholic priests that are in the um, in the slave uh, fortress and dungeon that sounds of demeanor, uh, and were pushed back against sort of the, the intellectual violence um, and, and and the basically the, the, the retribution and, and and the idea of, of being casted out of belonging to a community because one did not believe in Catholic Orthodoxy. So those epistemological and, and knowledge-based you know um, conflicts, Um, they remain in place uh, after the Portuguese um, essentially are, you know, they sort of fade away and they continue with other Europeans who try to um, play a similar game.
0: What does your book teach us about gender? Hmm.
2: Um, It teaches us that um, gender um, is is a fairly recent um, category that uh, is not cross-culturally valid um, but also teaches us that um, gender neither invites or prohibits who can tell the story of the category called women and so here I am you know a a man um, of African ancestry um, who um, you know some might think has no business or authority to to write about the the story of women and um, my answer to that you know, question, or at least that supposition is that, um, you know, um, we can write about anyone because at least I can write about anyone um, because the the goal is to get their stories right. Um, The goal is not to champion, you know, their their particular gender politics, (laughs) Um, you know, the goal is not to hoist upon them, you know, my 2020, uh, you know, view, you know, uh, uh, of gender and gender identities and gender orientations, Onto them. My 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 goal as 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 yeah. a scholar and historian is to um, tell their story as a human being. Uh, another category to which they belong, and so um, that's my goal and that's my focus. And so I, I sort of push back against you know these notions of feminist and gendered readings as if there's something special about that. Um, when um, my approach is again is to get their stories right and to do so yeah. as you know a human being. But I also make clear that I'm not their lawyer. So I'm not there to adjudicate their case. I'm not there to um, make a contemporary argument through their 16th century experiences that would fit into a particular ideological or academic um, camp, that I'm not concerned with any of those kinds of things. My goal and aim is simple and pure, get their stories right as close as possible in approximation in such a way that if they were alive or able to come back to life and read it, that they would see themselves in it.
0: What is your book's contribution to Akan history?
2: Hmm. Let me think about that a bit. Um, I didn't think about that in, in writing. So, um, as you asked the question, um, it pushes back. It pushes back the chronology in terms of what we can and know about this very early period. In fact, um, my my encouragement to up and coming and certainly seasoned. Um, scholars uh, is, is to go back into the so-called deep past as much as possible, much as the documentary, linguistic, archaeological, and other kinds of evidences um, permit us to do and do justice, you know, through those methods. And so um, it it, it, it's, it serves to instantiate um, an earlier period for which um, we haven't had this before. Um, you have scholars who have passed away um um, such as um, I'm thinking now of um the the collection of Portuguese documents by um, um, Antonio um, uh, Berrio, uh, as as well as um, the the work of um, you know people like um, Avelino um, de Mata. Who translated some of this earlier, um, you know, work,
1: um,
2: and there, there are tons of other people have done this. John Voigt and uh, Forever, you know, has, 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 has yeah, a book of I... presence, but very few scholars have actually done work on this earlier period, um, and so um, it it certainly adds a, a new and deepened layered, and it gives us lived experiences by which to uh, get a sense of you know what's happening in that world. Of the 16th century, both in that region called dubbed the Gold Coast, but also in the wider world to, to which these women are a part. What does your book teach us about the history of the Inquisition? It teaches us quite a bit. Um, first, um, you know, one of the arguments um, that I that I make is that a person like Grasa. Um, based on all that I've seen, she is perhaps the first, um, she's likely the first African and probably the first woman to go under the inquisitional process. Now, uh, it's not fully clear if, if, if she was fully under the throes of the inquisition proper, because her case file comes from the bishop's court. And in the book, I explain sort of, you know, how these different uh, distinct but overlapping institutions you know, work together. Um, but nonetheless, her file is one of the earliest for an African and for a woman, based on what I've seen. Because uh in the four years after the official Inquisition was 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 promulgated, you know, was 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 officially you know put online in 1536, her file again is in like 1540, uh, 1541. Um all you have essentially are notations uh, as to male or female. Uh you had nothing more uh, for those for those four or five years before hers. And so um, it gives, you know, people who are scholars in Inquisition, um, you know, fodder or, or, or food um, to further flush out, you know, that 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 organization of terror. Uh, it, it also, um, I think, adds to, you know, the ways in which Portuguese, I mean, Portugal as a missionary um, empire, in addition to being a maritime and and, and certainly a um, uh, slaving one, um, you know, religion was, was was very central to the identity of the Portuguese in in, in, in their reframing, coming out of the conquesta, coming out of you know, being under Muslim or so-called Moorish rule and occupation for seven hundred years. They wanted to rebrand themselves as a people, as as a nation and as an empire that was pure in identity that was pure in religion that was pure um in nationhood and so that notion of purity um you know was w- was was challenged most graphically by women like ajua um, monica and grasa because there was a specter of difference difference in culture difference in complexion difference in um spirituality and religion this difference all around. And that difference was, was something was something very challenging for the institution, uh, sort of the nerve center of the empire to grapple with, you know, how to deal with this difference. Uh, particularly a, a sort of insurgent difference. These not people who are willing to give up, you know, their difference in order to yield to or or consign to, you know, the the, the place um, carved out by the empire um, subordinately, you know, for them. So it, it, there, there are these particular themes and more that I think the book provides for those who have an interest in Inquisition and even to um, continue to explore more.
0: What is your book's contribution to culinary history and the history of
2: food? <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> There are some interesting parts of your book where food is, yes, is alluded yes.
2: to. Yes, it is, it is. Um, and that comes from I think Grasa's story, but a little bit of of, of Ajua's as well, where it, it, it's, it's major because it's 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 in um, you know one of the one of the um, I think I found you know at least what I can tell so far one of the earliest references to maize or corn being domesticated and being used uh, in any part of West Africa, and the date is fifteen ten, uh, of a, of a maize or cornfield um, you know to which Grasa would have known. Because um, she lived in proximity to the this polity called Fetu, uh, which had the cornfield. And the polity of Fetu had laid claim to part of the land on on, on, on which, the peninsula on which the Portuguese fortress of São João Mina or Elmina was was built. And so um, she would have used um, corn in creating a number of dishes um, that was used both to feed the personnel in the fortress, but also to feed that burgeoning regional... Uh, triangular, you know, slaving enterprise in the Gulf of Guinea, um, making biscuits because Grasa worked in the oven house. In addition, to, in addition, to the infirmary, she worked in the oven house, which means she would have baked those biscuits that were then used to provision this 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 nascent and burgeoning uh, regional um, slave trafficking, of course, you know, transatlantic um, slave trafficking. Um, she would have also. Um, bake the staple of the Portuguese diet, which was this sort of gluten-free, you know, bread. Um, bread was the major um, part of the diet, uh, a staple um, within the fortress, including, um, uh, you know, provisions of oil, uh, as well as wine, um, and other kinds of things that, that, that she ate and, and, and cooked uh, within the oven house. Because of her age, um, she was reckoned to be in her late 60s or maybe early 70s. Because of her age, um, she would have had long-standing experience being an innovator. Um, uh, because this Atlantic crop, you know, called maize or corn, which of course comes from the Americas, um, it was being domesticated and used in a number of ways that would form, you know, um, foods that are still consumed in Ghana today, like dokono, which is sort of this, this, this um, maize dish that's as as boiled in water in a leaf. Uh, and it forms like this dough that's eaten with fish, meats, and other kinds of stews. Uh, and docono is also used uh, in, in Jamaica prepared almost the same way right so these the, these culinary um uh, Innovations uh working with new and old crops uh, including root crops like yam and, and 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 newer ones like sweet potato that came from the Americas um you know they would have been uh, acclimated um, to the climate and and they were and they would have been used in addition to indigenous root crops uh what I found is that even though maize became popular and other crops, you know, had a some traction on the coast, they never surpassed the root staple indigenous crop of yam, and so yam remained consistent sort of all throughout. And therefore, the story here is that you know um, these starches, these translating starches, they added to but never surpassed indigenous uh, root crops, you know, that were consumed by indigenous.
0: In what ways was your book shaped by contemporary trends in the writing of microhistory? Which authors were most influential upon you as models and exemplars to follow? In what ways did you innovate from their approaches and methodologies?
2: That's a great question. That, that's probably already the easiest question you're going to ask me.
1: Mm. None.
2: Thank you. <laughs> None. Um, I, I, I was intentional. Uh, and I think I poked at this early on in probably earlier question. I was intentional about not being swayed or, or moved. By any of the contemporary trends in academia and outside of it, um, I wanted to listen to. Um, and spending those two years with Grass's file made me listen. I wanted to listen to what does she had to tell me? Um, you know what? You know, can her story, you know, do beyond simply just translating and 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 transcribing her file uh, and and finding it to be at least you know somewhat useful. Um, and so I was driven more so by the the mood and the texture, you know, of what I was reading in the records, you know, in which I found um, glimpses of these three women. Um, they were my starting point, my epistemological starting point, and my methodological starting point. I wanted to tell a story in which um, to paint a world that I could at least approximate that they would, you know, essentially say, yes, you know, I belong to that world. And so being driven by those kinds of, of, of motivations and those kinds of triggers uh, kept me out of the limelight of what's, what's what's fashionable and what's trending, you know, within and outside academia. Uh, it also, you know, helped me, um, you know, sort of stay away from, you know, essentially being influenced, you know, negatively, positively, by other work, because I didn't really see another book in which I wanted to write, like, I saw a lot of books that people would, uh, what they call, um, fabulate, meaning they would fictionalize, they would create things up, because they believe that the archive should have had that data point, or they believe that this is what this or that woman would have felt, even though there's no evidentiary plank upon which they would make that dive, they, they, they go there. And I was very clear about not going that direction and not being inspired by those books. So, it left me really just focusing on listening uh literally meditating on what you know could be uh excavated you know from the records and from also you know my my knowledge of of working in um the um the sort of historicity of of this regional place this, this geographic place but also in terms of you know what i know um about the Akan language and norms and and cultural forms that that animated that particular place from biomedical, archeological, and other sources that would not fill in the gap, but would help me to make sense of the gaps created by the documentary sources.
0: What forms of testimony appear in your book? What do they convey about testifying and its limits, consequences, ramifications, and implications?
2: That's a great question. Um, both in, in, in Grasa's and Monica's um, case, um, testimony is huge. Um, curiously, in Grasa's case, she had a grandson, but he did not provide or was allowed to provide testimony. In fact, both cases, it was only the denouncers for Grasa and Moniker that provided testimony, meaning um, their friends, their kins, uh, their children, or in Grasa's case, her grandchildren who she names, um, well, she mentions that she has a grandchild. Um, I think she might might have named him, but um, either case, um, none of them provide testimony. Now, later on in Inquisition, and this goes back to an earlier question you asked, Ari, about the evolution of this, this, this global creature uh, that we have tentacles um, you know, you know, in Brazil, in India. In fact, there was an Inquisition in Goa, in India, that was established. None were established, by the way, in Africa, curiously, right? And we can talk about that if you like. Mm. Um, but in the evolution of the institution, you know, you also find that later on by the 17th, 18th century, definitely, um, take books like, um, James Sweet's, um, books on Domingos Alvarez, you definitely find testimony from people that were related or people that, that knew the person that were not simply their denouncers that were not simply or only their accusers or, or officials. And so what you find is that, um, there is a deep. Epistemologically violent and gender imbalanced in terms of testimony, where in Gracia's case it's really just men, you know, trying her, uh, but there are a few women testify, but mostly men. In Monica's case, it's mostly women, <laughs> um, you know, that 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 her, her denounces, including one who was, you know, formerly her friend. And so, what the Inquisition did, at, at, you know, for these women and for the empire writ large it turned everyone into spies and and potential denouncers. And you would denounce uh, anonymously. And so anonymous denouncement was was the ways in which the empire as a creature was able to protect itself, guard itself against any threat that it deemed, whether it was ideological, spiritual, or otherwise. Uh, And so by denouncing anonymously, uh, it made everyone a spy, it made everyone essentially, um, you know, untrustworthy, because at any point, anyone could be denounced. And we do have the rare case of a Portuguese official, high official, in fact, he was the governor for São João de Mina. His name was uh, João uh, Um, and he was an elderly man, but he was, he was brought before the Inquisition for crimes of the flesh, where he w- was casually, and he was a serial rapist of african girls and women um some of his is some of his crimes are, are featured in the book as well as context in terms of what graca and Moniker um, would have likely either witnessed and or experienced um so the inquisition didn't spear their own he was he was the highest ranking official on the and coast and he was brought before him Inquis- cuz now he was given a pardon by the king Monica and Grasa were, were never given pardons. So again, there are power and, and other dynamics that, that that are operating through through this evolving institution um, that you know was globally in reach, but also um, it, it turned um, you know, know you know people, um, empires, I mean, turned people, you know, men of the empire, bureaucrats, and those um, captive and subject people under their, you know governance, um, in into in into spies and and, and denouncers. What did you
0: mean by the title? Many black women of this fortress? Why did you choose that specific phrase? How does the title connect the deeper lessons of your book?
2: Great question. Um, and I'll connect that what I what I will say to part of what I didn't answer in your previous question about um testimonies. So the title was plucked um, from a 1548 um, scathing report and letter uh, from a Portuguese priest um, who is resident at the São de Mena fortress, and he ta- he described this, this, this scene as a Sodom and Gomorrah, <laughs> um, you know, setting where Portuguese male residents are are engaging in all kinds of serial um, sexual violence um where these are men that have women and children he says at home in in portugal but but they're going they're going wild they're, they're going um they're off off you know off the rails <laughs> they're unhinged in, in, in their inhibitions and and, and the drive for for african women and girls bodies um, and so I thought, you know, uh, and he mentions this, you know, the black women of the of, the, of, of this fortress. And so, because the lives of Grasa and Monica and even Ajua, because you know she was in and out of the fortress, their lives um, play out in, um, but also intersecting with the fortress because Grasa and Monica also had strong ties with the indigenous communities in Edina, which was an adjacent. And neighboring, uh, but also partnering um, community with the fortress and therefore the Portuguese. Uh, in fact, the Portuguese gave gave sort of you know a veneer or protection and cover for Edina, which was their main um, ally um, in terms of allowing for gold merchants from the interior to come to the um, fortress, but also for the commerce in terms of goods leaving the fortress and heading out into the interior and hinterlands. And so, um, the sort of you know the movement between these women, whether between Edina, um, Fatu, uh, and the fortress, uh, the fortress is the common um, locus, right? It's the common denominator that connects these three women together. But the fortress is also a metaphor for the empire. It's also a metaphor for the Portuguese empire and, and you know, the, the modern world that comes out of essentially collections of fortresses. Almost all these earlier colonies in the Americas or elsewhere come out of a fortified trading post, right? And so, Black women of this fortress, I think, was apropos in speaking to, again, um, this context of, of, of modernity being born out of the violence and, and, and the serial violence, you know, of, of of missionary activity, of slaving activity, of religious um, and, and and certainly epistemological activity and, and violence, and out of this cauldron. You know, um these women not only bore witness um, in some cases with their bodies, uh, but certainly with their with their with their spiritual forms and and, and culture, uh, with their agency. Um, and though they really you know, spoke in first person in their testimony, and therefore their are limits to testifying, both from their point of view and and from their denouncers, um you know, they, they were able to speak in other ways. Uh, and I, I come back to the gesturing and the hand signals. Uh, from Grassa, which gives us another way to think about um, testimony, to think about history, and to think about storytelling and narrating.
0: Can you explain the epigraphs that o- that you open your book's chapters with? What are their <laughs> origins? What do they mean in context? Sure, um, can you
2: tell me which ones? Uh, I remember, I think, the, off the top of my head, the first one, um, One of Sure, there are a few. The uh, just, yeah. Sure, there are a few. Um
0: like I'd be, I would be curious to ask you if you can interpret them for us,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what virtue ethics do they espouse? What is the connection between the proverbs and the virtues they embody and the personality of the characters you present in your book? Um, I'll pu- I'll share some examples with you. Um, for, for example, um, one of them is the following. Um, at the very beginning, it was my choice, it was my life, and I didn't have to live it like that, but that was what life offered me in the way of being a woman, and I took it. I grabbed hold of it with both my hands by Rose Maxson in mm-hmm. August Wilson's Fences. That, that's one example.
2: Oh yes, and, and I had to start with that. By the way, there's a backstory. There's, there's a fight. Mm-hmm. I had to um, fight with the publishers uh, who own the rights um, for the late August Wilson's um, play, and of course, the movie, uh, mm. Fences. And, and this is Rose Maxson, so she, she's the co-star in the movie with Denzel and Washington's character Troy. Um, and 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 I just had to have this in the book. So there was a long mm. fight. I spare the details. Uh, it's a clerical battle with first of all, finding who was a rights owner, because August Wilson's estate, I think his his wife, surviving wife, um is very difficult to access. And so it took me a long time and lots of battles to just get this in the book. In fact, it almost didn't make it. It was really at, at the at the galley and proof stage that I was able to finally get um you know the the permission um to use it. So, Having had to have this, to me, th- th- this captured uh, first key word in the first clause is choice. That human action is about choice, and human history is is anything is everything but human action. It is that's what you, human action, in other words, creates human history, right? And human mm-hmm. and human action is a function of choice. What we decide to do, what we decide not to do, and so whether we make a choice or not make a choice is a choice made, right? And mm-hmm. so um, uh, I love the way, you know, um, August Wilson in the mouth of the character Rose, you know, just frames this, um, you know, that, you know, um, this is, you know, for, for the three women, for Grasa, Monica and, 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 and Ajua, um, that this is my life, you know. Um, and, um, but it's, and it's a life that was offered to me by way of being who I am right, um, a, a, as a woman, and rather than pout or complain or um, essentially yield to uh, woe is me about that, you know, uh, circumstance of life, you know, um, I grabbed hold of it with both hands, meaning firmly, assuredly, and that to me was the tenor and spirit of these women, you know, and that's why I had to have this um, lead, um, the, the the book, uh, it's not a statement of victimhood. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, and that's what I refer to um, in this idea of, actually it's beyond agency it's beyond female power. Um, it is really a human capacity and a choice that's made um, in the face again, of the serial violence that I've already mentioned um, in the face of this, this global empire in the face of captivity for Grassa for three, four decades, uh, you know, similarly, but for shorter tenure for, uh, Monica and of course for 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 Adua, um, you know her tenure was is a little more ambiguous in terms of her her status, though it appeared that she was more so on the Adina side uh, rather than working in the fortress. But in either case, this epigraph in particular sort of brings together the the texture, the feeling, the mood, and the temperament that I could ascertain about these three women. Another another uh, example is
0: what you open chapter three with. You have one proverb, family names are like flowers, they blossom in clusters. Another is the lizard and the antelope have similar names, but their appearance is not the same. Can you interpret these for us? Sure thing. What is sure. their relationship to what's presented in the chapter? What virtue ethics do they espouse?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the, I think the first one is lizards and antelope have similar names, um, but their appearance is not the same. Um, meaning that the the name of a person, which is essentially is a tattoo about who they are, uh, at least in a Khan societies, um, is it, it, not the same um, as, as as the resemblances in the parents in terms of who a person really is, because who a person really is, again, from this Akan cultural perspective, um, is, is really an interplay between um, the name that they're given Uh, and there's a naming ceremony called adinto or abadinto that occurs on the eighth day inclusive so for example i am (coughs) named Kwesi, which means i'm born on a sunday um you know if i had a kin that was born on a sunday and and female she would be akosua so i'm born on a sunday but i wouldn't be named um you know i'm i wouldn't be named on a saturday i'll be named on the next sunday so the week is eight days but it's inclusive so you count the first day so you count sunday then you count it again (laughs) Right. On the eighth day is when you're named and that ceremony is deeply important because what it does is it inscribes um, certain meanings in terms of name that's given. And so the automatic name is what's called a krading, which is the the first name, like Ajua. Ajua means Sunday, I mean, excuse me, Monday born female, mine, Sunday born male. And that one has a lot of rituals and obligations and taboos attached to it. It sort of layers to it. So in other words, and this this is really sets up this third chapter with Gassa, I mean, excuse me, with Adua, because all we have from this passing remark is Adua's name, right? And so um, how is it possible to write a life history just based on a name? That's the question I answer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because because the name is really a matrix. It, 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 it's a kernel that has everything that that the plant will will grow into in that particular seed. It has everything there. Uh, And so the name is really this this very important mnemonic device. It's also this important kernel. It's also this very important matrix um, that brings together um, all these complex features and overlapping features of a person's personhood, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Hence that, that particular problem. And the second one, you know, the family names are like flowers. They blossom uh, in, in clusters um this is very important because the second name that a person has beyond the quesi or ajwa is called the ajading which is literally father name in the sense that the father gives the child the name right During doing uh-huh. the ritual ceremony called adinto or abadinto and as such um this ajading is the uh-huh. family name so the person is then anchored or rooted within what's called a matri clan or abusia and they also rooted within the, the 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 male lineage. So the female lineage is a female line is called the Abusia, hence family. Um, the male line is called Enturo, uh, which is the sort of Patrick clan. So both the mother and the fem and 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 the and the father's line are brought into harmony and 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 together through this new being, through this person, and through their name. And so. Not only is their name a function of who they are, it's a function of who they are in the elongated sense, in terms of lo- in terms of all the cast members that form their ancestry, right? And that's mm-hmm. why, you know, when 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 you, when you poke at a person's name, particularly the the family name, it blossoms into a cluster of all the kinfolks that are part of that family and part of that ancestry, like a flower in blossom.
1: listen to the deal listen to the deal on spotify
0: what does your book teach us about atrocity hmm
1: Hmm.
2: atrocity um you mean violence or just yeah violence torture what
0: are some of the unique ways that we might think about violence and torture differently after reading your book how does your book challenge assumptions that readers might previously have about violence? What unique forms of violence are presented in your book?
2: Mm-hmm. Great question. And, and thank you for the um, explanation. The book will will certainly join into, you know, quite a bit what's going to be written about the encounter between uh, Western Europe and Western Africa. And certainly the sort of the the outgrowth of that into the Americas and into you know um, greater Asia, and so um, the serial violence that I've already talked about um, it, it will certainly bring them into view, and really um, say that this was the sort of the triplet or or or, or the um, sort of the the, the serial um, you know um, verb of, of this violence, the serial act um, again that slaving religious and uh, maritime, um, you know, um, violence and and, and institutions that supported them and sponsored them lay at the heart, lay at the core, lay at the very foundations of this thing called the modern world. Without this kind of violence, um, you wouldn't have, you know, the ways in which the modern world took its particular shape than another. So I'll I'll give you a few examples. So, uh, when the Portuguese went to the Americas, um, they could have easily chosen, and the Spaniards as well, they could have easily chosen um, cooperation, um, commerce, and and partnership. Um, but they chose violence. <laughs> uh, the Portuguese as well, in terms of the Indian Ocean trade, the so-called spice trade, right? Um, even though more than spice was included. But in Indian Ocean, where... East Africa and western you know India were, were were sort of the bookends in the Indian Ocean trade peacefully had pro- had, had had prospered for for centuries uh, we have accounts from this greek sailor down the swahili coast from the first century of the common era right uh, 2000 two years ago that describes this bustling trade and and tra- because trade as then and now requires peaceful <laughs> um, conditions um, we now know um, if if you like I are, are living in some part of the United States, uh, but I don't know if we're in the world that supply chains you know have been backed up and, and certainly has affected global trade um, because of war, right? So we know trade and prosperity thrives on peaceful conditions, and that was the case with the Indian Ocean before the Portuguese landed there, um, before the likes of um, Vasco da Gama, and certainly um, uh, Alfonso Albuquerque, right? Um, this, this, this very violent and, and predatory, violent um, figure, who forges an empire there um, for Manuel I, King Manuel I, um, through the sheer acts of violence. And by that I mean, for example, uh, the Portuguese uh, could have entered this region and plugged into a peaceful trade, a partnership, an arrangement. But you know, the 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 the, the, the greed and gluttony. Really sponsor the pillaging and plundering that occurred, and so, for instance, um, the Portuguese would capture um, Muslim um, um, pilgrims who were on their way ultimately to Mecca, and, and 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 would lock everyone on the ship and set it afire. You know, um, I mean, just just horrific in terms of atrocity, right? And and this was a serial act, right? Um, and, and and so um, this was a way, of course, for them to get their trade edge and to compel you know, people who grew and, and manufactured and provided the silks, um, the furniture, the, the spices, the teas, the peppers um, to essentially yield to Portuguese trade demands in terms of trade through serial acts of violence and and, and certainly um, coercion. And so um, that war was turned upside down through violence. And of course the Americas, I think we're pretty much readers generally would know you know how uh, what happened to indigenous peoples, what happened to the African peoples uh, and even you know even poor whites <laughs> um you know, who didn't bend to the will of, of Empire um it's a bloody story. and so I want to re-emphasize and, and play up the violence because we are often you know told these fairy tales of Pocahontas like and John Smith are <laughs> sort of the these very peaceful and and, and rosy encounters. Um, you know, um, and 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 the like, and and these are really just fictional things that that do not uh, subscribe to the very evidences that empires have provided and left behind. Uh, so I want to ratchet up and play up um, the volumes rather than play it down and 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 pretend that there is this sort of harmonious and peaceful intercourse uh, exchanges between these different worlds that collide. What forms of disease? plagued
0: communities in West Africa, under Portuguese rule as you describe
2: them in your book, how did populations respond? It's not all too clear in the records about, you know, the kinds of disease, but, you know, piecing the clues together, um, you know, we can extrapolate from the um, serial rape of girls and women that um, certainly STDs or sexually transmitted diseases were part of the, the process, though it's not always clear which kind um, they were. Um, and, and certainly there are other kinds of, of, of diseases um, that affected the Portuguese, you know, tropical ones, for example, malaria, which which they complain about, you know, habitually. Uh, they call it fevers. But of course, th- this is sort of the symptomology of malaria. Um, and malaria has a range of symptoms that are similar to, you know, COVID. They're similar to other um, diseases that attacked the immune system. And so um, certainly on, on the African side, th- th- there were malaria, um, yellow fever, um, you know, a- a- and perhaps more, but certainly on, on the Portuguese and other European side, um, because empire and colonization and slavery were usually a male European, you know, enterprise. not to say that European women were not involved. Uh, they were largely peripheral, largely, but not but certainly not solely. So this was largely a male Enterprise, and I want to emphasize that. And so, which means that, um, you know, these these men are are, are coming to the shores and, and are having uh, different kinds of, of of relations with these African girls and women. And so, one of the main transmitters would be the kinds of of, of venereal um, diseases that that certainly would would ravage on the slave ships that would embark between these triangular point of the Gold Coast or the Mina Coast, the Kingdom of Benin, or at least on the coast of it, the Kingdom of Congo, and certainly the South to is that you would have on these slave ships, you know, other kinds of disease that would that would pop up, um, you know, again like dysentery or or, or what they'd call yaws, and, and again yellow fever would come up, and then you have a, a, a sort of semi new, actually a new form, nutritional diseases where being fed um, a starch diet that was incongruous or not aligned with indigenous food food ways and and, and food habits and and dietary practices, well, now we're being replaced more and more um, by um, a heavily just just starch, meaning corn soaked in water or yam soaked in water. And this is what the captive people will be fed between their journey from this triangular region of, of the Gulf of Guinea, to Lisbon, and of course, to Portugal, and then from Portugal, some will be transcript to Spain, uh, whether it is um, the the various um, capitals or, or the other major cities uh, like Valencia um, in, in, in Spain. Um, and so, the disease complex um, increases once you have the transatlantic into place. And so now, once the Portuguese and other Europeans begin to, you know, interface with the Americas. Uh, they're not bringing diseases from there with them as well, and that, that of course, it, it 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 finds itself in in sort of the later records in the 17th century. Uh, what kinds of diseases that add on to the venereal ones and, and the indigenous ones that are already there? Can you comment on why Africa and
0: Africans experienced a different fate than other regions of the Portuguese Empire? You alluded to this earlier on, but why was the inquisition prevalent in goa differently than west africa for example why was it more active in brazil
2: than in west africa mm-hmm. great question uh, and, and to be clear the inquisition was never really fully established in in, in brazil uh even mm-hmm. though I, I think it was um philip the philip one of the philips <laughs> um when when portugal was under the you know the 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 rule of, of um, the one of the Philips of Spain um, between 1580 and 1640, both of the crowns that is of Spain and, and Portugal was, was was united, and King Philip, whether it's the first, second, third, or fourth, was in charge of both empires. So during that period, one of the Philips he wanted to establish the Inquisition there. It never really happened. So at best. What they got was a traveling inquisition where inquisitors would travel to Brazil, right? <laughs> sort of an ad hoc. They would set up shop and they would, of course, you know, try, you know, so-called heretics and and and, and unbelievers. Um, that said, it is curious and is remarkable that as you say, and you know, there is uh, and there was an inquisition in Gore. I think the reason is 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 probably two or threefold. First, it is is at the level of politics or po- and politics. Whereas in in Western India, the Portuguese, from Alfonso Albuquerque onward, were able to establish a certain hegemony, um, destroying, for example, Hindu, um, you know, um, sanctuaries and and basically building churches on on their ruin, um, and establishing these fortress-like communities uh, and converts uh, with them. So they were able to set up themselves, I think, much more. Um, you know, in, 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 in sort of a um, a trenchant way, then, especially, as I argue, in the Mina coast. In other words, they were able to conquer. On the Mina coast, no such conquest was possible. Um, none happened. The Portuguese even had a plan to colonize the Mina coast, seeing the success of colonization in Brazil. Um, so the Portuguese laid out a plan in 1572 to colonize the MENA coast, it didn't happen. And in the third chapter in case of um, Adua, I get into how that plan particularly, you know, fails. Um, The second, I think, reason is that the Gold Coast or the MENA coast, um, there was no one centralized polity that had, had, you know, overarching, um, you know, political control or, or, or sway. There were independent communities that had their own particular um, you know, power and centers of authority, which means that in the Congo, where there's, there's, there's a kingdom and there's one ruler, vertical hierarchy, um, once that once that king, beginning with Nzinga um, Mbemba, who was baptized as Alfonso I, once he conceded to the Portuguese religious, you know, overture to get their support for military weapons so he can uh, ascend to the throne, um, then, you know, the Congo essentially became the factory for feeding transatlantic slaving, um, your viewers might may may not know this, but um, about you know sort of forty percent, you know or more uh, of, of the of the Africans transported to the Americas between fifteen hundred and certainly eighteen you know 1800 or nineteen hundred came from that region, the Congo Angola region, the largest of any volume, right? So the Portuguese were able to establish themselves there on the Mina Gold coast, different story. Uh, they were not able to control or conquer or colonize the place. And I think that allowed for the, the political edge to the indigenous that were there. And therefore, as sovereign people with their own, again, ideas about themselves, self-understanding their own ideas about their place in the world and the universe, their own you know um, strength of belief and conviction, they were able to push back uh, against Portuguese overtures, um, all the Portuguese missionary efforts that tried there, the Augustines, the um, different Catholic orders. Uh, in fact, it got so bad, uh, Ari, that at as, as certain points, um, several of the Portuguese missionary societies, Catholic societies in Lisbon would refuse to go to the Gold Coast. <laughs> they just refused. They said, hey, wow. I'd rather go to the Congo and area, and case in point, a Jesuit's who were sort of the global, right, globalizing missionary force of the Portuguese. Um, And so the Jesuits, they just flat out refused. They said, no, we're not going there. We'll go to Angola, but we're not going there, right? And so there's something about, again, the indigenous cultural norms and forms and values that that, that essentially shape the actions and the ideas um, that push back against empire and empire's you know, um, orthodoxy, whether it's beliefs or its ideology or its practices.
0: In what ways, if any, were the stories that you tell in this book unique to Portugal's empire vis-a-vis the situation with other European countries that had African empires, such as Spain, Holland, Britain, or France? What features of Portugal's African empire were unique among European empires, what features were common, what was different, what's unique about the situation in Africa as opposed to the Caribbean and South America. Can you expand on what aspects of the story you tell are unique specifically to Portugal's empire? or to And to what degree did common phenomena occur in other European
2: empires? Great question. Let's see if I can answer it. Uh, so Portugal Portugal gets the pride of place because they were the first, right? They were the first sort of, you know, what I started call early modern uh, Western Europeans to uh, establish a presence in Western Africa and for a while maintain a sort of trade monopoly uh, that will be later contested by the cast members that you mentioned from Western and Central Europe, Central and Northern Europe as well. And so um, because they set the pace, they sort of plowed the way and set the template um, for how to engage um, Africans and and, and the ecologies um, of the African continent and its outlying islands, including Sao Tome, Canary Islands, um, and Cape Verde, and and certainly around the the tip of Africa into the Swahili coast uh, and beyond, that in having set the pace and having had this, this experiential basis, knowledge was the most important commodity for other European competitors. And so um, on the one hand, Portuguese kings were very keen on making sure that literature, chart navigational charts, maps do not fall into the hands of competitors, right? In fact, at a certain point, these documents were punished by death. Now, those threats, lip service were paid to because you know, the Portuguese... Bureaucrats of the empire, that's sort of the foot soldiers, whether sailors, pilots, um, residents, governors, they all were out for their own self-interest. And so many times Portuguese, um, you know, residents and officials and even, you know, common persons in the empire uh, who worked at this behest, they would actually, <clears throat> excuse me, join forces or um, partner with a competing European nation, for example, Holland or the Dutch, Right. But knowledge was so crucial, and and, and it always been crucial, essentially what we call big data, the big data were these charts and and maps, and and even ethnographic accounts of the people that were encountered, and basically how to engage in commerce, how to maximize um, trade and profit, um, and how to sustain these, you know, intercultural relationships and minimize conflict, which was always, you know, there. And so... Portugal's, you know, gets that particular prior to place and get that pace setting, um, and that was, um, well, unique to it. But chronologically speaking, not because others took on the formula, right? The Dutch did, the British did. They saw what worked. Uh, in fact, they competed with, in some cases, ousted the Portuguese, not only from the Gold Coast, but at some point um, during the um, certainly the seventeenth century, middle seventeenth century the Dutch were so emboldened that they basically, um, you know, took control of Portuguese bases on the Gold Coast, in the Congo Angola region. And they took over, you know, parts of Brazil, particularly Paranambuco, right? And so using Portuguese strategies, uh, using the template that they saw, and that goes back to think to uh, an old dictum that I, I was told, you don't want to be the first to innovate. You want to be the second <laughs> because uh-huh. you learn from the mistakes of the first innovator, right? And so the Dutch, they built ships that were faster, cheaper, uh, and more efficient than the Portuguese. The Portuguese caravels and Nars, you know, the innovation didn't keep up pace, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, the Dutch were able to exceed them. Um, They made some of the best ships in terms of the European standards, you know, in the 16th century and the 17th century. And they were able to basically outmaneuver the Portuguese at their own game as it will. But that came from using Portuguese charts, Portuguese navigation, Portuguese insider knowledge. Um, via spies, as well as people who became turncoats. And so um, other Europeans basically followed, you know, the, the, the patterns, uh, followed the patterns of trade, followed the patterns of engagement, made treaties with indigenous polities, right? Um, across the board, um, um, fought, but also allied with these people, on, on, you know, on the coastal areas and interlands, um, built fortresses, right? Um, so they... Meaning, these other European competitors uh, and, and 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 sometimes partners, <laughs> um, they would in fact, you know, you know, engage in their tussle because they were all pursuing um, a, a form of global dominance, um, and so they shared chronologically more in common based on the Portuguese sort of template and model that was uh, provided. There is a major difference in terms of the thrust of the Portuguese in terms of sort of the missionary verb, and at the Dutch. Yes, they had missionaries, particularly on the Gold Coast, but they were more interested in in, in commerce and therefore profit. And so there there was a less, they didn't have the sort of um, proselytizing, he conquester, right, inquisitional verb. Um, Same with England. Um, Again, England wanted the Inquisition, but never really had one, right? The, The Dutch... Like the English, at least half the English population after the sort of glorious revolution, they were not interested in Catholicism, you know, uh, as much. Even though England had been a Catholic nation, you know, you know before that moment, and so um, the Dutch, they were interested in 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 money, in profit, <laughs> in, in filling their coffers, less interested, even though they had missionaries and pastors in, in their fortresses, but that was for their own residents primarily, and also to you know, see about getting favorable trade through the leaders of indigenous communities on the Gold Coast and elsewhere. But the Dutch were more concerned with trade and profit than with proselytizing. The Portuguese were, were, were more concerned with proselytizing, so much so that by the end of the 17th century, when their presence on the Gold Coast is waning, almost vanishing, the Portuguese are still sending missionaries. <laughs> when their fortress is crumbling, when the Dutch has the upper hand militarily speaking, they're still sending missionaries while their commanding officers are begging for arms, supplies, and the like. That tells you about the missionary verb at the to the very end. There's a stringent commitment to it. In what ways,
0: if any, are the stories that you tell in this book unique to Portugal's African Empire vis-a-vis Portugal's South American Empire in Brazil? In what ways were the lives of women? In Portuguese, West Africa, similar or different from the lives of indigenous women in Portuguese Brazil. In what ways are the stories you tell of African women in Portuguese, West Africa, similar or different from the lives of slaves in Portuguese Brazil? And like, to what degree are there similarities and differences between the lives of slaves, of female slaves in portugal's colony in brazil and the stories you're telling in your book and to what degree are there parallels or differences in the lives of indigenous women in brazil vis-a-vis the stories you tell in your book
2: another great question um you've really done well with the question
0: (laughs) thank you you've done well with the answers
2: well i hope so so um this one I'm going to be a little bit timid with, uh, only okay. because I, I'm I'm not too certain. Even though I have read the Portuguese sources, you know, for for Bahia and for the early colonies, it's not clear to me, um, you know, what was the relationship between, specifically um, speaking, uh, indigenous women, um, uh, whether it's be the Tupi or other indigenous peoples found um, throughout what became Brazil. I have general sort of you know uh, notions, so I'll speak limitedly and generally, just with that caveat. Uh, I'm not a fully expert there, um, but I will say this from what I what I do know in both regions of the world is that um, on the one hand you have in 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 Brazil or what became Brazil because this was sort of a gradual process much like the United States right where 13 colonies are really on the coast on the East Coast then it sort of expands across mm-hmm. the Mississippi River and then of course into the Midwest and then of course California right similarly here um, you know places like um, Bahia or Salvador Bahia becomes the base and of course people move colonists move into what became Rio de Janeiro they move in the south like, like Rio de Sol or Rio de Grande do Sol. um they move in, in into the Amazonian region you know sort of uh, north into Hisife on the coast in, in in the northeast and Pernambuco so it's really an expansion sort of outwards and inwards and in that expansion in Brazil what happens is that there's more conquest um the theme of diseases and conquest takes more of a hold there than in West Africa in terms of the Gold Coast. As I mentioned before, there was a plan to colonize. It never materialized. And there's there several reasons, political and ecological and indigenous reasons why that didn't materialize. However, in Brazil, there was forms of conquest. There was acquisition, I mean, acqui- acquiescence, excuse me. Um, there was also um, missionary verb that worked. And so where you get certain people that would convert that would become essentially... Um uh, captive to the Portuguese God and, 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 and the sovereign. Um, missionary activity that was a um uh, tether to military expeditions. And this this comes from De Souza's early expedition, I think, in the mid-16th century in Bahia, that missionary and military expeditions were one and the same, meaning armies went out with priests, to make it clear, right? Um, and so they were one and the same. Um, and so that 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 sort of bond, which again flows from institutionally, Inquisition and the crown, right? Um, There was a tight synergistic bond, epistemologically as well as politically between these two institutions. And so the same happened in these outposts like Brazil. And so um, the scourge of diseases, military occupation, as well as this very strong and, and, and strident military verb took more of a hold there. And therefore indigenous people that were captive, that were converted, um, the women that that became um, concubines or or, or, um, or partners, the Portuguese men, whether by force or by choice, that played out much differently because in in Gold Coast you didn't have conquest, you didn't have colonization, right? And so you get a different kind of story that plays out in in, in both regions, and I think that that's sort of generally true um, for the the long haul, um, even though the Portuguese wished. The Gold Coast would have become the other Brazil. In fact, there's a report that that essentially says uh, that um, you know they wanted to create new Portugal on the Gold Coast, that never materialized. And the third chapter in the book gets at some some of the sort of uh, of discussion debate among the Portuguese leadership in in Lisbon, but also on on the ground, as well as you know some of the indigenous responses to this particular plan. Um, and and there's a series of them, by the way, these these plans ultimately um, fail. So I think the failure of those plans to materialize and shape something called a colonization process or a conquest um, essentially inhibited the kind of headway that was made in Brazil in terms of indigenous forms of slavery, concubinage, and therefore um, this quote unquote mestizo population that was created from the interchange between indigenous women and Portuguese men, you didn't find that much of that on the go Coast, if, if it were they were limited to the fortress, which was the really only domain that the Portuguese really, you know, had um, any form of political or, or, or control otherwise.
0: What does your book teach us about trauma?
2: Hmm. What kind of trauma?
0: Um, I would maybe put it in different categories. Um, in what ways... Does your book elaborate upon the kinds of abuse and suffering experienced by African women in in the context of Portugal's empire? Um, what does your, from a different category, what forms of collective trauma are presented in your book? And does your book challenge any assumptions that readers might have about individual and collective trauma? Another great question.
2: Okay. Uh, so the the transatlantic trauma, um, essentially the stories of Grassa, Monica, and Adua, essentially they sort of presage and even pre-stage um, what will be the collective transatlantic trauma because they did travel the Atlantic Ocean uh, northward against, by the way, the canary, well, the, the canary current. Well, they, they went outward and then went to Portugal. So they did cross the Atlantic. They didn't go to the Americas, but the way the Atlantic Ocean has worked um, for your viewers anyway, I'll remind them, uh, is that there, there are two major currents. There's the North Atlantic and then the South Atlantic. And you have to sort of go out on the South Atlantic and then ride back in the North Atlantic. So you, you make sort of a you you make sort of a wide arcing turn and then you go up further north and then you, of course you go east to head back into Lisbon, um, and particularly through the Tagus River, this broad river that runs through um, Lisbon and Portugal. And so they made that Atlantic crossing uh, without going to the Americas, both Graça and Monica. And so in many ways, they, again, they pre-staged, they set up what will be the, the collective trauma of being exiled, not only from your homeland, but from humanity. So these women as representatives, as samples, you know, from a continent and from from a you know group of of, of cultural beings and people uh, were casted as 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 non humans um, as 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 pagans, as heretics, as unbelievers, um, and in doing so, um, an entire people from a continent was casted in that particular light and lot. The only way to sort of half rescue them was was through conversion, baptism, uh, and I say half because that process was never complete. Uh, as the stories of Grasa and Monica um, indicate, I think quite clearly, um, there's always the sense of them, quote unquote, backsliding. That they never really relinquished their indigenous, um, you know, epistemological bases and beliefs and practices. Uh, so there's always that fear, uh, which goes back to the earlier question you asked, that was so unique about Africa and Africans. They never really relinquished, you know. Um, and though that may be the case too for Africans and others who are Muslim, but certainly here it was always that particular suspicion that one was n- that baptism and, and conversion was never complete. It was it was always that room that these people still are holding on to, or they, they, they they're still um, not completely, you know, within the Catholic fold. Um, and so the, the the grand trauma here is is is, is again being casted from homeland. Um, being kinless. And to me, transatlantic slaving is about that. It's about being kinless. It's about being never able to see and connect with your relations, Um, not being able to be buried in your homeland, which is very important among Akana and other African peoples. And so to be be, um, casted outside of your homeland, to be casted outside of humanity and to be casted away from kins and relations, both in the flesh and in spirit, because the rituals that connect these African people, the spirituality connect them is through the land. But having been, you know, uh, casted outside of that homeland, you're then in, in, in this quandary, you know, this is sort of uh, particular uh, and, and necessarily violent, um, you know, sort of, of, of limbo, even purgatory where, um, you know, you can't get back home physically or spiritually. And that, of course is what the transatlantic slaving was about, you know, in all 13 plus million, you know, recorded peoples. Um, you know, is 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 this kind of 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 rupture, uh, grand trauma um, that would occur in much larger numbers? But of course, uh, as your viewers may know, transoceanic slaving, be- you know, began by from Western Africa to Europe first, and then to the Americas, and so it it allows us to sort of uh, of either you know recalibrate or, or even remind ourselves that. It wasn't simply from Africa to the Americas and other parts. It was to Europe first and then Alabate, you know, um the Iberian Peninsula and then to the Americas, right? And so th- that that's sort of the pattern that um Graça, uh would 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 and Monica would chart. And finally, um the other trauma is of course, you know, being this perpetual prisoner to the Portuguese monarch and his god. Um both um Monica and Grasso were, 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 were sentenced. Uh, Monica was able to, I will not to give too much book away, but she was able to get out of it, um, how it's in the book. But for Grasa, she was sentenced as an elderly woman um, for a, a life sentence to a monastery for further indoctrination. Um, wow. And so, you know, um, you know, she probably died there. Without the proper burial, without her relations, without her kin, and this again will be the lot for the vast majority of African peoples who were exiled from their homeland on a one-way voyage like hers, uh, and like Monica's, um, to the Americas. Monica, fortunately, she had a niece with her, but then again, she complained that she was poor; she did, she ran out of money, and she was begging for whatever assistance she could get. So, it's being kinless—you know what what was the ultimate crime against African humanity—to um, which the Portuguese and other empires layered on and and, and became, you know, um, the modern world that we inherited.
0: What does your book teach us about, quote unquote, sorcery and quote unquote, magic?
2: That those things are are often um, fictions, but those those fictions, you know, have a reality. And so um, I recall purchasing when I was in London this past summer, as we were chatting before we got on recording, um, picking up a book from the British um li- British Museum, excuse me, uh, British Museum bookstore uh, uh, called call spellbound. It's about magic and sorcery in, in in old England, right? And to me, um, you know, the Portuguese, like the other European folks, uh are really when when when, when they cast uh African folk as 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 sorcerers and and and, and purveyors of witchcraft, um you know, and therefore being without right religion or right belief, they're really struggling with something in their own cultural and historical DNA that they haven't grappled with, meaning that um most of the Portuguese population, the rural population, their lives were were, were were filled, were littered with 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 superstitions. Even Portuguese kings, as as I sort of lay out in the book, um, King Denis onward. You know, had scorpions' tails and other kinds of things that they would use, <laughs> you know, to ward off evil or to do this or do that. And so, it is the uncomfortability with this past of being, you know, you know, definitely superstitious, um, definitely um, pagan and, and 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 unreligious that has not been fully exercised and certainly resolved within the collective European psyche and therefore they cast upon others which is to say that used to be like who they were and who they think they're not to be and this is where the Portuguese idea of being pure comes from right the idea that even though we were occupied and ruled by 700 years by Muslims whose, 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 whose language Arabic essentially you know fills 30 to 40% of the portuguese language and, and similarly for for spanish right um whose culture whose architecture um still um exists in in in, in lisbon in cordoba in, in in valencia and other parts of spain you can't tell me that that long durée of of influence of presence um did not infect and, and and certainly metastasize in the belief of the people there and so um, portugal claimed to be pure because it is grappling with the idea that it no longer was influenced by a superstitious beliefs of their own um uh, you can call it visigoths and other you know origin um but also the idea of having no remnants you know of of of, of islam you know in their lives and therefore when the africans come into this who are non-islamic and non-christian um, of having none of that. And so when these Portuguese and European folks encounter Africans on their own soil, in the flesh, um, what they're reminded of in their mind, not that they're right, they're wrong, but what they're reminded of wrong-headedly is of their own irresolved past in their own cultural DNA, their own paganism, their own superstitions. And therefore they cast it upon those who are deemed to be different in, in, the, in the clearest and starkest way, complexion, culture, language, et cetera. Uh, And make Africans the demonic inverse, you know, of who they claim to be in their purity um, and the like.
0: What was it like for you as a human being to work with the sources you studied in your study process? Did you experience any vicarious trauma from reading about the deep suffering of the characters that you examine? How do you how did you feel as you learned about the experiences of the individuals that you present in your book?
2: Hmm. Well, I try to keep a, a certain kind of not distance, but a certain kind of awareness. Um, I don't make I don't make any claims to objectivity, whatever that's supposed to mean, which is actually a fiction that academics you know toss around like a football. <laughs> but I, I do make the claim to being honest with myself and that I'm not their lawyer. I'm not there to adjudicate their case. I'm there to get their stories right as much as possible um, and to do it in such a way that you know they can recognize themselves in it. And from that point of view, um, and of course, as a, as, a, as a fellow human being that, that, that is now um, in the flesh, um, it, it's it's really um, tough. But the way I took that toughness, in terms of you know the, the trauma that that you um, make mention of, is I saw that trauma not as a call to action, again, to lawyer on their part. I saw that trauma as really as, as, as a window into their lived experience, right? So um, I, I wanted to get as close to that trauma, as close to, therefore, to them as as I could, um, you know, again, w- without crossing the line, which is becoming their lawyer. And by that, I mean, to, to dare to think, I could know how they think and feel <laughs> without any direct or indirect evidence, you know, um, of the sort to support that. So I knew what ledge what 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 you know evidentiary ledge you know I was standing on um you know and I would poke at certain things I I would you know uh, certainly um, prod um but uh, but I, I wouldn't go over the ledge or go too far um sort of a discipline myself um to say that you know um I'm also not their healer um but if there's a consolation prize by having their story now shared with, you know a global audience um, and have it told rather than being, you know, quote, unquote silenced (laughs) um, or not being told, the consolation would would be that um, now, you know, their story, you know rather than being stored in these, you know know, dusty pieces of paper that you had to wear white gloves or (laughs) the like to touch that they're now Available, you know, for other people to see how, you know, in a world not very different from ours, it, thematically anyway, right? Um, you know, these people, these human beings, uh, were able to uh, act, and and the basis of their actions and their ideas, um, in, in you know, in, in fighting for you know their own self-understanding and fighting for um, their own cultural norms and forms, um, their spiritual and cultural values. And that that kind of fight is always worth it, whoever whoever the opponent or the may be, and, wh- and whatever the odds may be. What does your book teach us about internal
0: family systems? Can you tell us about the family systems that the women
2: you present in your book lived in and experienced? Great question. Um, unfortunately, the sources are very much <laughs> uh, mm. not forthcoming about that dynamic. Um, but there's, there are some hints. And so we know that Grassa had four sons, right? In fact, she had the most children of any women you know, in, in the fortress at the time of her trials in 1540, 1541. Um, by the way, she had been there for at least four decades. And, and, and so um, she had a grandchild, which means that her children had children, right? So we can extrapolate that she had extended family within the fortress, uh, and, and perhaps even in the adjacent um, villages uh, in proximity to the fortress. Um, and you know, I also um, suggest um, that though we don't have evidence of outright rape, um, you know, we don't have evidence of consent either. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something for the readers to consider. Uh, for for how she you know got those children again out of all the children I mean all the, all the women that were there in these periodic lists that were provided from the fortress to the you know chain of command um, and by the way the, the records are such that because of um, you know the 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 movement over the years of the royal archives to you know its present location to the um, fifteen seventy five me. Yeah, 1575 earthquake or tsunami and fire in Lisbon that destroyed about a third of the city and destroyed the royal archive. Maybe more. Um, we have lost a lot of records, and so we have incomplete records in terms of you know what what I, I could uh, assess. But I, I was able to um, ascertain at least um, over 200 Portuguese records. Um, you know, for for the period you know in which the book is is framed. And more secondary readings and other kinds of, of, of records, uh, as well as printed primary sources and so on. So, from all those records, um, you know, Gressa gives some hint at, at, at extended family structures of close knit net because, again, the fact that the grandson was there with her shows sort of the tight knit again within a still slaving regime, slaving um, entrapol uh, or enclave um, for for Monica who, for all accounts, appears to be a very desired woman. Uh, it was claimed that she cast a spell on the Portuguese men. <laughs> um, she had no children. And that begs the question about um, you know, indigenous forms of abortion, whether it's plant medicine, because she did consult a healer on several occasions, a male healer uh, in, in the village of Edina. Um, um, it says something about you know um, you know was she you know also uh, raped which which seems you know very very likely and very possible even though we don't have the you know direct evidence to say so um, but if she was and 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 you know why not why did she have any children um, why she chose not to and if she did if she did chose choose not to did she use any of the plant medicines uh, or rituals. Uh, made available through access to this healer. So these are sort of open questions are left uh, about why she never had any children, being such a desirable woman, according to um, the Portuguese testimony. But uh, we don't have anything. Again, we just have her, her name, but we do are able to sketch out what her family situation would have been like in terms of her mother and father um, just based on the name alone with, with some adjacent um, you know records that we have to work with. Um, so taken together it's the paucity and, and the kinds of, of, of records that we have to uh, mull over, um, struggle with, <laughs> stress over, uh, that that uh allows us again to leave gaps that will never be answered or never be, you know, completely filled. In one of your footnotes, uh, you write
0: as follows. Um there's a footnote I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on page 146. Um you write the following. Gross's case started out within the framework of the bishop's court ordinario, and at a later stage, representatives of the Inquisition were called in as the accusation touched on issues of faith, that is heresy, and the final sentence was handed down by representatives from both the Inquisition and the bishop's court. This very early case came before the Inquisition, had worked out what was to become its usual procedure in so-called witchcraft cases. Unlike the Spanish Inquisition, the Portuguese one worked out an informal division of labor with the ordinary church justice system. Bishops' courts, as opposed to institutional ones, which were under the dual jurisdiction of the church and the crown, whereby the Inquisition dealt with cases where formal heresy was involved, for example, Judaism, Lutheranism, Islam, leaving so-called minor offenses such as superstition or blasphemy to bishops' courts. Witchcraft was a borderline case if it involved an explicit or implicit pact. With the devil, it was for the Inquisition. If not, it stayed in the church courts. In 16th century cases, there are a few references to Africa, mostly in early trials for Islam or smuggling. The latter cases are curious, since, for instance, selling horses or cloth to North Africa was equivalent to selling strategic weapons to the religious enemy, the King of Portugal deemed that smugglers to North Africa be tried by the Inquisition, since enslaved Africans charged with witchcraft were unlikely to have been involved in worship of the Christian devil their cases were usually tried by the bishops' courts. Can you expand upon this for us?
2: Sure, there's, there's a lot going on there. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the takeaway, uh, it, it, there, there is one, and there are probably several, but I think at least uh, a major takeaway from from that that footnote, which is really describing the sort of division of labor, right? Um, both the religious or uh ecclesiastical division of labor again who gets blood on their hands right spiritual religiously or not and noticed here um ari that the theme of purity still is operating right that certain parts of the inquisition you know are, are to remain pure are to, are to remain unstained by the blood by the violence by the carnage that they are party to right so there's a way in which these divisions uh, and and this sort of informalized relationship is 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 built up a sort of architecture that allows in you know, one part, the most important part in terms of the empire because uh, the Inquisition polices the empire, right? It, it surveils the empire to make sure to weed out and, and basically to uproot and, and, and to deal with any forms of heresy and unbelief. And so the Inquisition gets essentially a pass because of the notion of purity and the functions of the Inquisition for the empire. Um, and, and and whatever are the matters that um, do not touch on matters of faith, you know, directly, um, they usually put them in the bishop's court. Now, what I find very interesting about, you know, you know all this is that witchcraft was borderline, right? And, um, but the Africans that were brought to trial from Grasa, Moniker, even to the later file, 18th century file of Domingos Alvarez, who was deemed to be have a pack with the devil, right? <laughs> um, and and so and he was tried several times, both in Rio and and, and as well as in in Lisbon. Um, that Africans tend to be, you know, brought for these cases, and 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 that goes back to what I said before about the ways in which difference, complexion, culture, language, uh, the contrast was the greatest when it came to Africans from the Portuguese point of view, right? The Muslims were not for Muslims or North Africans that were Muslims. For the Portuguese, were were, were African in in, in the vaguest of sense, um, but 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 they were called Moros Moors, right? Which means they were Islamic. Which means that for them, them being the Portuguese, uh, they had a lighter complexion, right? So, in some, and so the Portuguese, I should I should mention early on, um, their purity was purity of race, mean identity, purity of religion and purity of nationhood right and so mm-hmm. whatever they went around the world they would measure people based on that purity so for example when you are in china the portuguese you know um navigators and pilots and, and 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 you know military commanders they write that the chinese you know are, are are white like us right or or the people in india um are like black men right these are literal words you know from from the portuguese sources so you know it is it is it is the gradient right sort of the range if you the bandwidth of, of 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 racial consciousness and race ideology that frames you know essentially um, who is likely to be um, a purveyor of witchcraft a purveyor of unbelief a purveyor of uh, of sort of the worst kind um, of of unbelievers and Africans tend to be cast in that and I'm arguing because of the the Portuguese frame of references, built up frame of references of, you know, based on purity and based on the fact that their racial consciousness um, and, and, and color spectrum, right? Um, gave them a certain kind of slot to say that Africans generally, if they're, if they're Black, they belong here, right? Um, you know, and, and so you find this in in the records, uh, even people that, that are, are from Senegambia in upper part of West Africa, Um, that were deemed to be mordos, meaning moors, which is a vague category that could mean a a range of skin colors from someone who is, um, you know, very um, brown, a tanning complexion to someone that is is sort of, you know, sort of a a brownish, tannish color, right? It, It, you know, that color consciousness and that racial ideology around the color consciousness, again, rooted in the notion of purity, um, really, I think, dovetail into uh, the kinds of um, affronts to the Portuguese view themselves as being a pure race, religion, and nation, uh, and therefore assigned to Africans al- al- almost uh, without fail, uh, particularly ones that would deem to be black um, in the category of witchcraft, where it can go either way, it can go into the inquisition, depending upon how one deems the, the, the severity in case of Domingos Alvarez, or it can go into the direction of the bishop's court. It's unclear, finally, if, um, you know, if Grasse's case, because again, the inquisition still getting his act together would have um, gone fully into the inquisition rather than stay with the bishop's court, um, even though both parties were involved, you know, as you noted in the footnote and to which, you know, the, the book lays out. Uh, it's curious to know if the Inquisition, if she would have come, came along later, let's say a century later, when the Inquisition has this act together, if she would have had the full array of witnesses and therefore testimonies, if she would have been a pure Inquisitional case or stay within the Bishop's Court. The key is that the ambiguity, I think purposeful in witchcraft, allows for either party or both uh, Inquisition and Bishop's Court or the ordinary church to essentially work out their informal arrangement.
0: As we bring our dialogue today to a, to a close, I'd like to ask you, what are you working on next as a, as your current project? What are you working on now? Can you tell us about the research you've been engaged in since the completion of this book?
2: It's true, uh, and certainly, um, I just finished writing a, a, well, I'm working on a manuscript, I since I'm finished writing, I've done a few chapters, but I'm working on a a, um, sort of a big book, not in terms of size per se, but in terms of just weightiness um, substance called Empire's of Gold. And um, it it seeks to recalibrate, um, you know, um, this question of of why the modern world took the shape it did uh, and not another. And it seeks to do so through, the perspectives of African and world history, um, and therefore seeing them as 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 mutually reinf- you know beneficial um, modes of, of inquiry, um, rather than art couples, which is tended to how they are presented. And I'm going to use the the Gold Coast to um, essentially tell that story from an African region that was globalizing before Portugal and other Europeans came to its shorelines. Uh, it was globalizing through its goal, through trans-Saharan and trans savannah um, um, trade. Um, and so um, using an African region, again, to recalibrate uh, and, and reset uh, our, our sense about, you know, essentially how we got to this place um, and in the way that we did rather than another. And in that one, you know, I, I argue that by, by looking, by reframing the, the sort of the questions that um, you know, historians tend to tend to ask um, what what I'm what I'm interested in. You know, in in this particular project, is effectively, you know, what are the um, you know the 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 main drivers um, for how this particular um, thing called the modern world, you know, took shape in the way that it did. Rather than um, again uh, another way, and the the, the way that that um, I framed it is is sort of like this, where you know I want to know um, while working to combine you know world and African history perspectives, you know um, you know I want to know essentially, and, and and this I think has not been done so far is you know what if the modern world um, you know uh, which is created by the age of global empires, um, you know, was 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 viewed, you know, from the African supplies of gold, you know, from the lands like the Gold Coast, uh, uniquely the Gold Coast, that hosted, you know, these empires' trading posts, and from the people um, subjugated, you know, or subjected to their beliefs and whose bodies supplied the skilled labor innovation that would essentially craft this modern world modernity, and really, you know, I you know. Can historians, you know, ask big questions about how we reach the modernity stamped by slavery, you know, race, religion, through the global movement of people, goods, and beliefs from a local place, you know? And so I'm looking to sort of answer these, these sort of big and large questions, um, you know, through a very, at uh, on the one hand, the scale is global, um, but it's also, um, I have a lot of granularity, meaning just, just make sure of specificity. So it's balancing global movements and patterns with, specificity. And so, um, you know, it, it, the research has taken me to about 16 or more countries, and, and their and their archive, uh, multiple languages. Um, and I hope to, you know, by next year, we finished with with the writing and, and, and um, you know, completion of it. Um, I'm also writing by invitation from a publisher, I'm also writing um, um, a history of the African diaspora. Which would be sort of a global history of the African diaspora, the sort of formation of these, you know, diaspora communities over the world, um, from you know the earliest periods of which the document sources allow to the more recent period, um, to which you know we we are we are we are engaged. And so that one will is um I just started gathering my notes and the like as one I teach a course on it. So uh, the course is helping me to frame it, but I'm thinking more so for the reader rather than student, you know, what, what's sort of the best way. So I'm still working through the framing of it. I got about 90 pages of notes <laughs> and sort of sorting through and organizing myself. Um, so those are the two um, ones that I'm working on right now. Um, and think the final one that I'm looking to work on, and you spoke to this early on, Ari, which is really a a, a, a book on um, sort of the transatlantic consequences of what I call this the translating-slaving diet. These these um, cast members of crucial starches: um, sweet potatoes, um, corn, yams, beans. Um, yeah, these starches and what, what they what they have what has been their consequences on the biology and and the cultures and history of the um, of Africa, West Africa, and, and, and the African diaspora in the Americas. Um, in particular. And so I'm looking to work on that, um, you know, in, in the near future. I
0: wish you best of luck with these extraordinary projects. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for our Thank conversation you. today. I was absolutely grateful. I think your book is phenomenal, and I would absolutely re- recommend it to our listeners. Um, I loved reading it. I would absolutely recommend it to students and scholars. Thank you for all the erudition that you shared with us today and that you demonstrated today and that manifests in the book. And thank you for your eloquence in your responses to the questions in our dialogue.
2: Thank you very much, Ari.
0: Take care. To our listeners, I'm Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books Network. I have been in dialogue today with Dr. Kwazi Konadu. He is John D. and Catherine T macarthur endowed chair and professor of african history and africana studies at colgate university we have been discussing his new book many black women of this fortress Garassa, monica and adwa three enslaved women of portugal's african empire published in london by hearst 2022